Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I want us to read this morning the first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father, father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadad, and Amimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now I heard it said one time that the first rule for the public reading of Scripture is never read a genealogy, which is what we just did. The names are hard to pronounce. The repetition can be monotonous. The persons mentioned are often obscure to us and we don't appreciate their significance, etc., etc. And when we come to the genealogies in the Bible, there's a tendency that we have just to skip over them or to rush through them, to not give much thought to them, much less to give them serious consideration and reflection. What do you think about when the time comes to read in your Bible when you come to those genealogies in Genesis or in Chronicles or Ezra, Nehemiah, or here in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 or over in Luke chapter 3? Are these parts of the Word of God less important? Are they just to be hurried through and skipped? Is it something that we just put up with until we get to the really important parts of the Word of God? Do we want to jump ahead in Matthew chapter 1 to verse 18 where 
the gospel really begins, that we think that way. Well, let me remind you, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Every part of the scripture comes to us from God, and every part of it is profitable. Do we believe that? Do we appreciate and try to make appropriate improvements in use of all and every part of the Holy Scriptures? I suggest that this family tree of Christ must and does teach us that it reproves us and corrects us and it trains us and the righteousness of God is to be found here in this portion of the Word of God. And if God has been pleased to speak these things to us, then we should be careful to consider and to listen to all that God has said. Now, I hope to convince you this morning and this evening that we should never think lightly about this portion of the Bible, especially here in Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is full of theological and doctrinal content, and it is full of practical lessons and applications for us as Christians. The gospel is here in these verses, and may God give us grace to see just a little of what there is uh, in this passage of Scripture this morning and this evening. What you say first is important in any writing. And this was particularly true in ancient writings. And how does the Holy Spirit start not only the Gospel of Matthew, but the whole New Testament? He begins with this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that this fact alone should get our attention and should direct our special attention to what is being said here in these opening words of the New Testament. Now this evening, I want us to consider lessons that we can learn from this genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. What use can we make of it? What doctrines do we see here? What practical lessons can be learned? There are many, many lessons to be learned from these verses. We're actually this evening going to only look at seven lessons from just the first five or six verses. But this morning, I want us to focus our attention on one particular thing that is very unusual about this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. There is something here that we do not find in the other biblical genealogies or in other Jewish genealogies from ancient times. Our subject this morning is going to be the five mothers of Christ. We see the first four, four ancient mothers of Christ, in verses 3 through 5, leading up to the birth of David. We see the fifth in verse 16, leading up to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those ancient mothers are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, and then there is Mary. We need to be very much aware that Matthew could have written this genealogy without mentioning these women at all. It is not the norm to mention mothers in ancient genealogies. The mere fact that they are here should grab our attention. Why are women recorded here? Why are these particular women here? Are these the women that we would have expected to have our attention drawn to from all the generations of mothers leading up to the birth of Jesus? Are these the four women that we would have chosen to select and highlight and draw attention to? Why not Sarah or Rebecca? 
They are passed over with no mention. All of these ancient women are problematic women, women that we might try to hide rather than highlight if they were in our own family tree. Do you have people in your family past that you would just as soon forget about? That you would avoid bringing up or making mention of? That you would hope nobody would ask you about? Every family has its black sheep and its skeletons in the closet. We all have our Tamars, our Rahabs, our Ruths, our Bathshebas, and yet here they are brought in the most in-your-face way to our attention by Matthew. And so let us consider these and see if we can understand some of the reasons why these four ancient mothers of Christ are given for our consideration by Matthew and the Spirit of God who has inspired these words and how they are significant in our understanding of Mary and the birth of Jesus that Matthew will describe beginning in verse 18 of this chapter. Let me just briefly give you some information about these women, and we can only be brief. Uh, we don't have time to dig into real details about these women. But first of all, Tamar. Verse 3 says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Matthew could have just said the Judah, could have, could have just said Judah, the father of Perez. That would have been the normal thing. But he doesn't do that because he wants to remind us of this story. Now, the story of Tamar is found in Genesis 38. This is one of the most disappointing chapters in the Bible. There's nothing good to be found here. Judah associates himself with pagan Canaanite friends. Judah marries a pagan wife. Judah fails to raise his sons righteously. Judah gives his sons to women of Cana, one of them being Tamar. His two oldest sons are so evil that God takes their lives. Judah is unfaithful to his covenant obligations to Tamar. Tamar becomes pregnant with twin boys by Judah, her father-in-law, accomplished by a deception made possible by Judah's own immorality. In this chapter, we have false worship, deception, infidelity, and public scandal. Why would Matthew want to bring such a story to our attention? He can tell us anything that he wants. And he could certainly just skip over this dark chapter, but he does not. He brings Tamar to our attention. Then there is Rahab, a Canaanite harlot. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is living in Jericho. It is a city that has been devoted to destruction. This woman with a despised profession living among a cursed people. But here she is in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth. Moab was cursed by God. And consequently, Ruth, being a Moabitess, was under that curse. Moab was cursed by God because they rejected the true and living God in favor of their idols. Moab was an enemy of Israel, doing everything they could to hurt and hinder and bring ruin to the people of God. The nation of Moab was actually formed when Lot had a child named Moab through his incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. The grossest kind of human relationship, incest between a father and a daughter, produced this people. It was Balak, king of Moab, that hired Balaam the prophet to speak curses against Israel. 
And because of these things, we read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so, is, and so here is Ruth, a cursed Moabite widow, but a mother of the Christ. Bathsheba. It's not clear what role Bathsheba played in her adultery with King David and the subsequent murder of her father Uriah. Was she a seductress or was she a victim? Regardless of her complicity in this matter or not, she is forever marked by this great evil. And the marriage that she enters into with David begins in dark circumstances and under the dark providence of God. Adultery, conspiracy, murder. These are the things that have been attached to her name. But here she is, recorded by Matthew and brought to our remembrance. And then there's Mary. Now, at first glance, we might think that Mary does not belong beside these four ancient mothers of Christ. But there is a connection that I believe that Matthew has in mind. He is making a defense of this unusual family situation, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. We must remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is being born in a scandal. True, there is no sin. Mary has done nothing wrong. But to the onlooking world, here is a 13 or 14-year-old woman who is pregnant and clearly pregnant before she was married. Everyone knows that she conceived before she was married. This would be obvious to all. What conclusion do you think people were going to draw? This is where Matthew is going in his narrative. Look down at verses 18 and following. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her father Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so you see, Joseph wrestles with this very thing, the circumstances of Mary and this child. So we see that our Lord is being born in scandalous circumstances. And while Mary and Tamar, or Mary and Rahab, are very different people on a personal level, yet they look very much alike to someone who is looking from the outside. But God is bringing his purposes to pass. He brought David into this world through this family line. And now he brings David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, into the world in similar dark circumstances. So here are Joseph and Mary, subject to criticism as those four ancient mothers of Christ were. And in the plan of God, he uses these strange marriages and conceptions for his own purposes, despite all of these things. Now here is a defense of the birth of the Lord Jesus in these unusual circumstances. And a reminder to us that men are not bringing the Christ into the world, but this birth is God's doing from first to last, it is as it has always been, even from ancient times. 
It is a defense against attacks upon the genealogy of the Lord Jesus because everyone has acknowledged David as a great king. And look at those women who were in his family tree. You could not attack the genealogy of Jesus without also attacking the genealogy of one who has been recognized by all as a rightful king of Israel. And dear ones, God can fulfill his purposes despite human sinfulness or weakness or obstacles that seem so great to us. Now I want to consider some lessons from these five mothers of the Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 1. And the first thing I would like for you to consider with me is God's faithfulness. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God has promised His people a deliverer that would save His people, Genesis 3.15. But here is the real-life Judah. He is not a Christian man. He is a, not a worshiper of Yahweh, but a wicked, unfaithful man. Has God's plan run into a roadblock? Have his purposes been stifled? Where is this disgraceful situation? Where in this disgraceful situation do we see any hope of the Christ coming into the world through this man? But even these disgraceful circumstances cannot thwart God's purposes from marching forward unhindered and undisturbed. This is what Matthew is telling us. And so it will be with Jesus. In these names we have a messy story. If someone were to ask you, how did this happen in your life? Why did you do this? And we might say, well, it's a long story how I got into these circumstances. But what we would really mean is a messy story. It's a sinful story. But God always remembers his promises and God will always keep his word. And if you are a Christian, think about these promises in your own life. We all go out of the way and we all sin just like these mothers of Christ. We all hope that it would be different. We all want to be a good example to our children and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We all want to walk close to the Lord. We all want to make right choices. That's what we desire. But when we look back at our life and at our current circumstances, we see that our life in so many ways is not what we, have, we would have wanted it to be. But dear, one, dear ones, our sins cling to us, and when we are honest and sober-minded, we have to ask this question, how can the Lord fulfill His promises in my life? Have I sinned too much? Haven't I gone from the good and righteous path too far? Haven't I messed things up to the point that they can never be made right? Well, God fulfills His Word even through messy lives, even through sinners and the darkest sin. And Christian, what has God promised to you? He's promised us many things. Let me mention just one. It is a big and a wonderful promise, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things, including our sins and our failures and our shortcomings and our disappointments, all things are working together for good. God is faithful. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. Another thing that we see here, another lesson, another doctrine is Christ's humiliation. All of this is an aspect of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's not born to what we would consider to be the best, not the most righteous families, not the most noble or the most most lofty, not the best immediate circumstances of his birth. Philippians 2, 7 says, He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He He was made like us in all things. And if you've studied your own genealogy, you have no doubt found many notorious sinners in your own family background. And so it is with our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows our frame, and He has participated in it in every way. Hebrews 2.11 says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is not ashamed to call Tamar mother. He's not ashamed to call Rahab mother. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And he has been, even in this part of his humiliation and suffering, made like us. How low did the Lord Jesus come to be born from this family line? We often think about the humiliation of Christ in terms of his, the humble circumstances of his birth, or his poverty, or his rejection and persecution, And finally, the shame and disgrace of the cross. These things are the humiliation of Christ. Christ coming from glory to be less than a man. Psalm 22, 6 says, but I am a worm and not a man. But his humiliation did not begin at his birth. Tamar, who dressed like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law Judah. Rahab. Whenever her name is mentioned in the Bible, there's always a nickname added to her name. It is Rahab the harlot. Ruth the cursed Moabitess who married into a disobedient Israelite family. And Bathsheba whose name is not even given by Matthew. Matthew says the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Caught up in horrible sin. There are other names that we could mention from this genealogy. Ahaz, he closed the temple doors and put a stop to the service of God. Manasseh, he burned his own sons as sacrifices to pagan gods. 2 Kings 21.9 says, And Manasseh led them astray, speaking of Israel, led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. There are many other black pages in this family story. We don't have time to mention them all. And really, we could say it this way. Who is excluded from this sinful story? Even the best of them are sinners through and through, apart from the grace of God. But this is the family tree of the Lord Jesus. This is the family into which he was born. Now, if you and I were to pick a family line for the Lord Jesus to be born into, what kind of family would we have picked? It would have looked very different from this, don't you think? We would have picked the very best people. But the God of heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who purposed to save sinners through the person and work of this Christ, has done something very different. We could ask the question, does it have to be this way, that he is born of a harlot, from an adulterer, from cursed people, from these wicked kings? God could have picked a very different family line, one that was made up of respectable people. Why a family like this? Well, he was pleased to choose this family tree, planned from all eternity, knowing full well who each of them would be 
in what each of them would do. Do you see how low the Lord Jesus was willing to go to identify with his people who are sinners in all things? He does this out of love for sinners. Sinners like David and Abraham. Sinners like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And dear ones, he was willing to go even lower. He was willing to receive publicans and sinners. He was willing to reach out to the outcast of Israel and call them to himself. And he was willing to go even lower. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He goes so low as to be murdered as an a evil Roman criminal. And this is good news to someone who has discovered that he is no better than David or Abraham or Judah or Tamar, someone with a broken heart before the Lord, someone with a messy, sinful life. It tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ does not shun sinners. It tells us that though we have reason to be ashamed, the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he is not ashamed to ashamed to call Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary, mother. Such are the depths of the humiliation of Christ, humble to the dust, that he might know sinners and save them. And then note with me the width of the gospel in this genealogy. Who does this family include? It's not just the descendants of Abraham. It has never been just the Hebrew people. Now, obviously, all the men are Hebrews because if they're descended from Abraham all the way to Christ, all the men are Hebrew people. But this in family tree includes people who are outsiders, people who are unclean, people who are a cursed people. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, people devoted to utter destruction. Rahab is from Moab, a cursed people forbidden to have any part with the people of Yahweh, the true God. Bathsheba is married to a Hittite. But there is room in the family of Christ for all of the nations. And the promise to Abraham is that through his seed, the Lord Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And when Jesus arrives on the scene of history, the testimony concerning him in John 1.29 is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew who starts his gospel by drawing our attention so pointedly to these Gentile women ends his gospel with, with these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now let me tell you the rest of this story about these Gentile people, these cursed people, these outsiders. There is a disgraceful, evil Judah. But this man repent, repents of his treatment of Tamar, Genesis thirty-eight twenty-six, And this traitor of Joseph pledges himself for the life of Benjamin in chapter 44. And when the time comes for Jacob to bless his sons at the end of his life, the Lion of Israel will be from the tribe of Judah. What about Tamar? Many believe at the heart of her determination to have a child from Judah's family was her belief in the covenant promises to the people of Yahweh and the Messiah to come. And then we have this incredible statement in Ruth chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 
All the people are blessing Boaz and Ruth at their wedding celebration. They say the most surprising thing. Let me read these verses to you. Ruth 4, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And then these words. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Ruth and her future children bless to be like Tamar and her son Perez, evidence that God blessed and prospered Tamar's life. And he used her to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. What about Rahab the Canaanite harlot? We know it was her faith in Israel's God that prompted her to help the spies that entered Jericho. In case there was any doubt about the faith of this woman, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear. Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. The city of Jericho was about to be attacked. Within its walls, there were people of all classes and stations of life. They knew full well that if their city would be sacked and stormed, they would all be put to death. But there was not one of them who repented of sin or who asked for mercy, except this woman who had been a harlot. She and she alone was delivered. The only one among a multitude described in the verse that we just read from Hebrews as those who were disobedient. It's the easiest thing in the world to believe when everyone else believes. But the difficulty is to believe alone when no one else thinks as you think, to be the only one who believes. Now, this was the faith of Rahab. She stood alone, and according to Hebrews, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish. And apparently the faith of Rahab was a sanctifying faith because we see her no more as the harlot, but as the wife of one of the princes of Israel, the mother of Boaz, the great-great-grandmother of David, and one of the mothers of Christ. Ruth. The story of Ruth is certainly one of great grace and the kind providence of God. It would seem to be utterly impossible, though, for this woman to come to know the true God and to have any place among God's people. She is brought to one of the most astounding confessions of faith in all the Scriptures, Ruth 1.16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Her faith has been tested by the poverty and the sorrow of her mother-in-law. Naomi says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And yet Ruth says, your God shall be my God. Her faith was tested by the apparent indifference of this woman that she loved. You will remember that Naomi did not at all encourage her. Indeed, she seemed to discourage her from following her back to Israel. And though Naomi showed her love to Ruth, she did not seem to have a very great desire to bring her to follow Yahweh. Nevertheless, Ruth pursues Naomi's God in whom she believes. Another trial for Ruth was the turning back of her sister-in-law. Orpah kissed Naomi and left her. 
And you know that the influence of one young person on another, it, on, on another, especially when they are the same age and related to others, is great. But Ruth will not go back to the gods of Moab. And we know the rest of the story. Ruth does, in fact, go to Israel. There she is redeemed by Boaz. And this most unlikely of all people, this Moabitess, becomes one of the mothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is Bathsheba. Please consider with me some things about this woman. I want you to notice the fact that when the prophet Nathan goes to David to to confront him, it is David that is charged with sin, and not one word was spoken to Bathsheba. David, David is punished, not Bathsheba. Now, all the consequences of the adultery are directed at David, and though Bathsheba will also suffer because of, of many of these consequences, they are not aimed at her. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, 27, we, we, we read these words, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God judges David, and he takes the life of this child. But then something extraordinary happens in the life of this woman. 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, mothers... How would you feel if a prophet of God came to you with a special revelation from God that he loved your child and that he would have a second name, Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh? Does that sound like to you that God is still holding something against David and Bathsheba? It sounds quite the opposite. This was a marriage that wasn't supposed to happen, and yet God crowned it with his blessing. Chastisement and repentance is followed by a life restored and blessed. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Bathsheba will prove to be an important ally to Nathan in bringing about the reign of Solomon. You will remember that there were other sons of David with aspirations to the throne. And there's another thing that needs to be pointed out about the place of this woman and the purposes of God. 1 Chronicles 3.5 says, There were born to him, that is to David, in Jerusalem, Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Matthew tells us in verse 6 that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, we have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is very different from Matthew's genealogy. Most believe that Luke traces the physical line of Christ through his mother Mary back through the generations. In Luke 3.31, we read these words, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So Bathsheba is not only the mother of Joseph, the legal line of Judah's kings, but she is also the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. Both Mary and Joseph can call Bathsheba mother. She is not just blessed, she is wonderfully blessed by the grace of God. And one last thing about Bathsheba. Do you love Proverbs 31? Is it not one of the precious and rich places in the Word of God? That passage, that chapter about the virtuous woman. 
Well, verse 1 of that chapter says, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, many scholars believe that the name Lemuel is a nickname for Solomon. If so, then these things come to us from the teaching and wisdom of this woman, Bathsheba. All of you women have heard sermons about being a Proverbs 31 woman, have you not? Isn't it amazing that, that, prob- that it was probably written by Bathsheba? How great is the grace of God. One last thing to draw your attention to. The reach of the gospel is wide. We see that in this genealogy. It reaches to all people, all kinds of sinners from all kinds of nations throughout the world will come to bow before this king. Revelation 5, 9, By your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. If you are not a Christian, then why not? What obstacle is there that separates you from the family of our Lord Jesus Christ? This family tree says to every person, you can be in this family if you will only believe. Your past is no barrier. Your sin is no barrier. Your background is no barrier. Now, one last thing about this family. Its past may be blemished, but its future is not. Our Lord Jesus Christ is working through His Spirit and Word to sanctify all that belong to this family, His body, the church. And because of Christ's work in us, Paul can say in Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We know that the work of sanctification will never be complete in this life, in this world. But Christ will do something else for those who belong to Him. Ephesians 5.27, So that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. On the last day, Christ will no longer have any reason to be ashamed of anyone in his family. Jude verses 24-25 says it this way, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The five mothers of Christ call us to believe. They call us to the family of Christ. Do you have a messy and complicated life? A sinful life? Is it worse than the life of Tamar? Or Rahab? Or Ruth? Or Bathsheba? The five mothers of Christ tell us that there is no one that God cannot save. And there is no life that he cannot use to do his work in this world. May God help us all to believe the gospel, to be confident that our God is working all things for the good of our souls and our lives through His power and His mercy. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank You that You bring these four ancient mothers of the Lord Jesus Christ to our attention and 
that we can see how you have overcome by your power and by your saving work uh, all the sin that we would do, all the horrible things that we can bring in our life, Father. You're able to save us from it and deliver us and bless us. And we thank you for this. I do pray, Lord, that you would cause all of us to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we are Christians of many years or whether we have never come to faith in Christ, I ask you to save us from our messy, sinful lives and make them right through the power of our Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.